Today we continue our seven-part sermon series entitled Making Disciples, whereby we are learning seven characteristics of a God-built disciple as they're on display in the book of Psalms. Thus far, we have already learned that a disciple is one who is dependent upon the Word, one who's active in worship, persistent in prayer, has a mission outside the church, and today we discover a disciple is one who has a ministry inside the church. We have borrowed the definition of a disciple from John MacArthur, who once said, a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ. We've added to that to declare that a disciple is one who knows him personally and makes him known passionately. Perhaps one of the most notorious disciples with an effective ministry throughout the book of Psalms is a man by the name of Asaph. Asaph was Israel's worship leader in the days of David. Asaph was like George Beverly Shea or Chris Tomlin or Phil Wickham of his time. And Asaph was one who loved the Lord and loved to make God known in his ministry. Yet when you and I come to Psalm 77, the worship leader is weary of worship. The servant is overwhelmed with sadness. The minister no longer wants to do ministry. So my question before you this morning is, how do you minister in the midst of misery? If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Psalm 77. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Psalm 77, a psalm of Asaph. Please hear the word of the Lord. Beginning at verse 1, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O Lord, and I groaned, and I mused, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night, yet my heart mused. And my spirit inquired, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten how to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, To this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works. I will consider all your mighty deeds. For your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock. By the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
Psalm 77 is a tale of two psalms. It starts in the depths. It ends in the heights of glory and worship. Asaph begins by telling us, I called out to God for help. The word call out means to shout or to cry. He called out to God to help him. But apparently, God gave him the sovereign silent treatment. It gave him a Christological cold shoulder. He gave him a, a godly gag order. He called out to God, and God did not answer him. We're not told why he cried out to God. Maybe Asaph was fearful of an imminent attack from the Philistines. Perhaps the economy was facing enormous inflation, and many of his friends, all of his friends, were feeling the squeeze of that downturned economy. Maybe some of Asaph's friends had lost their jobs or lost their spouse or lost their children, were about to lose their mind. Maybe Asaph himself was having a personal sin that so easily entangled him. He was struggling, and he called out to God for help, and God did not answer. I do applaud him for turning to God. He didn't turn away from God, did he? He didn't turn to false idols of the pagan nations that surrounded him. He didn't try to self-medicate with drink or drugs, food or folly. He turned to God. He said, I cried out to God for help. And yet God didn't help him. It appeared as if God did not listen. Hear the words of Asaph. All night long I stretched out untiring hands. As a child stretches out his hands to his father, hoping that earthly dad will pick him up and love on him. So Asaph stretched out untiring hands in the night, and it felt as if there was no one there to take hold of his hand. No one there to pick him up. No one there to tell him, I've got it under control. It's going to be okay. He stretched out untiring hands. He said of the Lord, you kept my eyes from closing. What does that mean? It means, God, you kept me from getting a wink of sleep. I was up all night. I was calling to you. My prayers were flittering and falling from my lips. They did not make it to heaven's courts. And, and you kept me from sleeping at night. I was too troubled to speak, he says. Which means, I, couldn't even could, I could not put two coherent sentences together. I didn't make any sense. I was just mumbling. I was fumbling. And nothing I said really made sense. I could not put two sentences together that made any sense. I was too troubled to speak. And the song leader eventually said, to this I will turn. I will, I will sing my way to sanity. But even the songs that I love didn't help. Now, this man's in dire straits, isn't he? He is miserable. We don't know why. 
We don't know why he's overwhelmed with sadness. We don't know why he is weary of worship. We don't know why he is struggling to minister to the people. But I promise you, he came to this conclusion. God, if you force me to get on that stage one more time, I will just be a fake and a phony because I, I'm not even hearing you when I call out to you. Do you know what it is to be miserable? Do you know what it is to be overwhelmed with sorrow? Do you know what it is to call out to God feeling as if God is not listening? If you've never felt that Christian, just give it some time and you probably will. It's almost an inevitability of life. That the longer you walk with the Lord, there are highs and lows. And sometimes the lows are so deep and so dark. Sometimes you think to yourself, God is not even listening to me. When you get to verses 7, 8, and 9, Asaph asks some bone-crushing questions of indictment. In those three verses, he asks six questions. And some of those questions are questions like, will the Lord reject forever? Has his unfailing love vanished? That word for unfailing love is the loyal covenantal love of God, the hesed love of God that he has for his people. And Asaph is so down in the dumps, he's so overwhelmed with sorrow, he is so miserable that he actually asks the question, will God's loyal love simply evaporate? Has his love for me vanished? And then the question that really punches me in the gut. Asaph asks, has God forgotten how to be merciful? Has God forgotten how to be merciful? The first nine verses of this psalm, Asaph is down in the pit of the dumps. But then everything swivels. In three verses, 10, 11, and 12. And then what flows from verse 12, beginning 13 all the way to the end of 20, it's like a totally different guy. It's a totally different psalm. I want us to examine what flows from verse 12 and then go back and look at that swivel, pivotal part, verses 10, 11, and 12. You get to verse 13, and Asaph says, God is holy and God is great. Is there any God as great as our God? That's what he asks. And you read that, and you think to yourself, is this the same author? Is this the same guy who just moments earlier asked the question, has God forgotten how to be merciful? And now in verse 13, just a few verses later, he says, is there any God as great as our God? And then he reflects on how God delivered the Israelites from their Egyptian captivity. He remembers that with the mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God delivered. And to the point that the waters convulsed and they writhed at the appearance of God. They separated so the Israelites could cross on dry ground. He begins to discuss how the waters uh, came forth from the sky, that the thunder shook the earth, the earth quaked and trembled, lightning flashed across the sky. His thunder could be heard in the midst of a whirlwind. And God is so good, for he led his people like a shepherd leads his flock. And he led them through the hands of Moses and Aaron. You get to the end of the psalm, and it's a psalm of celebration and praise, but it sure doesn't sound like the same guy who started in verse 1. So how do you go from misery to ministry? How do you go 
from sadness to service. How do you go from weariness to worship? How did Asaph do it? The key is found in verses 10 through 12. Everything pivots in this psalm in those three verses. And in those three verses, Asaph just, he simply says that meaningful ministry must be hitched to God's mighty activity of the past. So, if I'm going to do ministry for the Lord, it must be rooted in ministry from the Lord. And in verses 10, 11, and 12, Asaph renews that perspective that ministry for the Lord is rooted in ministry from the Lord. It is here at this point that I find very helpful the words of Warren Wearsby. For Wearsby reminds us, don't ever doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. Darkness will tell you some stuff. The light will teach you some stuff. Don't doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. Because when you're in the dark night of the soul, when you're in the pit of misery and despair, it is easy to listen to darkness. But don't let darkness tell you some stuff. You let light teach you some stuff. Let me give you a few examples. Darkness will tell you God doesn't love you. But the light has taught you, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Darkness will tell you, God doesn't care about you, but the light has taught you, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Darkness will tell you that God cannot forgive you for what you have done, Yet the light has taught you if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I wish I had somebody to testify this morning because darkness will tell you that God cannot have a relationship with you because of what you've done. It severed your relationship with God. But the light has taught you that I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Darkness will tell you some stuff, but the light will teach you some stuff. Don't ever doubt God in the dark for what he has taught you in the light. Asaph, in the first few verses, he was in the midst of darkness, and he was listening to darkness, But then, in the last eight verses, he started remembering and listening to what light had taught him. If you look at these two end of the spectrums of this psalm, you'll discover that the first nine verses, there are 18 references to I or me. In the last eight verses, there are 21 references to God, the Lord Almighty. In the first nine verses... The psalmist is focused on self. The last eight verses, he's focused on Savior. 
the first nine verses, he sulks. The last eight verses, he's eager to save and to serve. The first nine verses, he is on the verge of burnout. The last eight verses, he's ready to stand out for God. In the first nine verses, there's absence of God. In the last eight verses, God is awesome. In the first nine verses, he's about to walk away from ministry. In the last eight verses, he can't help but to minister. How is this possible? Because Asaph understood that ministry for the Lord must be rooted in ministry from the Lord. That my good that I do for him is hitched to the good that he's done for for me. So in verses 10, 11, and 12, he just simply reminds us, I remembered the deeds of God. And I meditated upon his mighty acts. And I considered the deeds of the Lord. Look at those three verbs. The three verbs, I remembered, I meditated, I considered. This changed his perspective. The word remember means far more than just to recall. The word remember implies an intentional recollection. An intentional recollection. I've been around church people long enough, and you have too, and you hear church people who say, you know, I can't remember nothing. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning. Can't barely remember my name. But I've been around enough deathbeds that people who can't remember their name, they remember the song of faith that they learned as a six-year-old little girl. I've been around the deathbed long enough, and I, I, I can testify that there are some saints that are on the deathbed. They can't remember their social security number, but they sure do remember scripture verses that the Savior has taught them at, a, at, the, at the dark night of their soul. And they can testify to the goodness of God. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit lives inside the Christian. And Christian, if you are a believer in Christ Almighty, then you have the capacity to recall intentionally his mighty deeds. You can remember what he's done for you. If God has taught you something, then you just have to teach somebody else. If God has sung over you, then you just got to sing on behalf of him. If God has served you, then you've got to serve others because you know that ministry for the Lord is rooted in ministry from the Lord. What you do for him is hitched to what he has done for you. So you intentionally recall the goodness of God. You intentionally remember his mighty deeds. That word meditate, we've bumped into that word before. In fact, we found it on the front porch of the psalm, Psalm 1, where the psalmist tells us that blessed is the one who meditates upon his law both day and night. Perhaps you remember that, that word meditate, which is the same here in 77 as it is in Psalm 1, that word meditate, it means to portray the image of a person walking down the street mumbling under his breath. We call that person crazy. God calls that person holy. Because in this word picture for meditation, the person is mumbling the very word of God. He is committing it to memory. You know that the Bible that you hold in your hand is a relatively new phenomenon. Since the last five, six hundred years, because of the printing press, 
copying God's word became much more feasible, much more economical, so that you have one or more copies of God's word. But this psalm was written some 3,000 years ago. How was it passed from one generation to the next? Some people memorized it, and then they passed it on, taught it to others about repetition. They memorized it. And then they passed it on to their children by repetition. And then those children passed it on to children. And that's how it went from one generation to the next. And so in order to do that, as a person walked out the highways and byways of life, they would mumble and mutter. They would stumble and stagger through the streets. And they would just simply recite the scripture. I asked the question before that, friend, if, if all the Bible you had was the Bible you had committed to Scripture, committed to memory, how much Scripture would you have in your heart and your life? Because for these followers of Christ, if they didn't memorize it, they didn't have it. So Asaph said, I had to meditate upon the mighty, marvelous deeds of God. Once again, there's an intentional aspect to this verb. He intentionally meditated. And then he said, and I considered. To consider is not nonchalant. It's not just, uh, uh, just a casual glance or a casual observance. But to consider, once again, carries that intentional aspect to it. To consider something is to mull over something, is to really digest something. To consider it. To look at it from different angles. To consider it. I want you to hear that for Asaph, uh, all these verbs were very strategically chosen because he's saying, I'm not just going to recall the mighty deeds. I'm going to remember intentionally the mighty deeds. Not just going to meander through the scripture. I'm going to meditate upon the scripture. Not just going to coast through the good deeds of God. I'm going to consider the good deeds of God. It's intentional effort. And if you are a born-again believer, your mind has been transformed in the renewal of Christ Jesus. And so you have the very mind of Christ. And you can lift up your stinking thinking. And you can elevate your thoughts so that you focus intentionally upon who God is and what he's done in your life. When you do that, you remember that the God who's been good to you is calling you to do good for him. Because your ministry for the Lord is rooted in his ministry to you from the Lord. So all that we do for Christ, all of our service, all of our worship is hitched to his activity and his identity in our life. Now you sit there and think to yourself, preacher, are you trying to tell me that in order for me to go from misery to ministry, all I've got to do is set my gaze on God? Are you meaning to tell me that all I've got to do is just think about God intentionally, specifically, consider him and all of his goodness to me and to read his scripture and to meditate upon his holy word. Are you trying to tell me that the only thing I gotta do is just really focus on God and it will lift my stinking thinking? Pastor, are you trying to tell me that that's all I've got to do? You've got to give me something better than that. You've gotta give me something more than that. You gotta tell me to do something in addition to that. Are you trying to tell me that all I gotta do is just lift my gaze to God as I meditate upon him and his goodness to me will, uh, will shape me and influence me to do goodness for others. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Now, if you think to yourself, that's not going to work for me. Okay, maybe it won't. But can we at least agree on this? It worked for Asaph. 
if it worked for Asaph, it just might work for you. If it worked for Asaph, it just might work for me. Before you come to the conclusion of, of, Pastor, I've got to have something more than that. You've got to give me something deeper than that. than Just to focus intently upon the Lord. Well, that's what Asaph did. And it seemed to work for him. So sometimes in life what helps me to go from misery to ministry, from sadness to service, from weariness to worship, what, what helps me is just to meditate on the goodness of God. Because ministry for the Lord is rooted in ministry from the Lord. Any good that I do for him is hitched to the goodness that he's done for me. So I just meditate upon the goodness of God. And I remember that the story tells us that God did deliver his children from Egyptian captivity. Pharaoh and his army behind them, the Red Sea in front of them, and God just stepped in to save the day. He parted the waters. So the Israelites crossed on dry ground. As soon as they crossed the river basin and Pharaoh and his army went into the river, God stirred up the water again and Pharaoh and his army perished. And the Israelites were liberated. They were set free into the promised land. And I think to myself, if God can liberate those children from their captivity to slavery, then certainly God can deliver this child from his captivity to sin. As I meditate upon God's word, I'm reminded of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three Hebrew brothers, those three boys who said to King Nebuchadnezzar, we will not bow down and worship the idol that you have constructed, for our God is able to save us. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, we will never bow down. Because of their defiance, Nebuchadnezzar got angry. He ordered for the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than it ever been heated before. Some of his lynchmen got together, bowed up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, threw them into the fiery furnace. Nebi just pulled up a chair just to watch them burn. And as he looked through the glass, he saw that there were not three but four men walking around unbound and unharmed. He called one of his servants over. How many dudes did you throw into the fiery furnace? And they said, three, oh master. Then why is it that I see four and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods? Friends, I'm here to tell you that if Jesus will show up and dance with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their fiery fiasco, then Jesus just might show up and dance with me in my fiery fiasco. I'm just here to tell you that God is good to me. And so ministry for the Lord must be hitched to ministry from the Lord. When I meditate upon the scripture, I'm reminded some 2,000 years ago that God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He came on a starry night. He was there and he was born into a rustic cave. The announcement of the king was not given in palace halls, but rather in pasture hills. And the angels said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And those shepherds, they hurried off in obedience. They found it exactly the way the angels had said. I meditate upon that scripture and I think to myself, if God can give good news of salvation to redneck shepherds 
like that. He can give good news salvation to a redneck shepherd like this. When I meditate upon God's word, I always go to Calvary. It's there where I follow my Jesus. He stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem with a crossbeam strapped to his back. He went through the streets outside the gate, up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, and there Jesus died. He died in your place and in my place. It was James Montgomery Boyce who said that while Jesus was on the cross, he was enduring my hell so I might enjoy his heaven. He died as my substitute. He died in my place. And as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, he's got two thieves, one on his right and the other on his left. The one thief is hurling insults at Jesus, but his compadre says, hey, brother, watch out what you're doing. Don't you know we deserve what we are receiving, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then, don't miss this, then turning to Jesus, he said, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus turned unto him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now we can talk about what that means. We can talk about what happened to Jesus after he died. But he said to the thief, today, which I take it to mean today, today you'll be with me in paradise. We can squibble and squabble over what paradise means, but paradise is a place where Jesus is. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that paradise is the third heaven that he was caught up to. So for Paul, paradise and heaven are synonyms. If it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. Jesus said to that criminal on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And friends, I got to tell you, if Jesus can save a crook like that, then Jesus can save a crook like this. I wish I had somebody who could testify today that the ministry we do for the Lord is tied to the ministry from the Lord. I can tell you that it was April the 15th, 1981, when God saved me. Six, nearly seven years old, I was watching an Easter special on television. It began to spark some questions. And on that night, God saved me. How do I know? Because I called on him. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I know that night, I said, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes and I'll make a lot more. And I ask you to forgive me and to come into my heart. And I know he saved me. In that moment, it wasn't an audible voice. It, it wasn't thunder and lightning. It was a peace that passes all understanding. That I knew that Jesus saved me. He called me into a ministry about the age of 17. He called me to preach. I did not sign up for this. I was drafted into this. It's not that I wanted to preach. It's just I can't help but preach. You see, Jesus taught me some time ago that ministry for the Lord has to be rooted in ministry from the Lord. Since God has been so good to me, I've got to stand up and talk about it. I, I, don't, I don't preach for any applause of men. I don't preach for any accolade or any recognition. 
The reason I preach is because God put fire and shut it up in my bones. Woe to me if I don't preach because I know that this ministry of preaching that I have given myself to as I think about preaching, as I think about putting a sermon together, as I think about studying a scripture, as I put in the time to study that scripture, as I think about you, as you join me in the sermon writing process and preparation, and as we are there, and as I'm working it out, as I'm writing it out, and then as I come and deliver it, I do this not for your sake. I do this not for my sake. I do this for God's sake, because God has been good to me. God has taught me some things. I've got to to teach somebody else. And so God has put a sermon inside of me, so I've got to get that sermon out of me. Because I learned a long time ago that ministry for the Lord must be rooted in ministry from the Lord. If God has been good to you, you've got to hitch that to the goodness of God, that the goodness that you do for others. Because ministry for Christ is bound to ministry from Christ. The only way you move forward in meaningful ministry is to look back at the marvelous deeds of the Lord. The deeds of God that are recorded in Scripture, the deeds of God that have been evident in your life. If God has loved you, you got to love others. If God's been good to you, you got to be good to others. If God sings over you, you got to sing over others. If God gives you a word, you got to give that word to others. Because our ministry for the Lord is always hitched in ministry from the Lord. How he's blessed us, we in turn hope to bless others. I love Easter. You may sit there and say, well, you're a preacher, you're supposed to love Easter. I know I'm a Christian preacher. I know that Easter is important to all of us. But I think that because I was saved around Easter time, Easter is always significant to me. I was saved in the month of April, April the 15th, 1981. That was sometime around Easter. So the story that's told for us in Luke chapter 23 of the criminal on the cross who simply turned to Jesus and said, remember me when you enter your kingdom, And he replied with, today you'll be with me in paradise. That story always resonates with me. Because I know that any sin I've committed is a crime against God. I'm a criminal who's been set free. I'm a criminal and the prison sentence has been paid in full. I know that I've got to take my seat, but before I do, Can I just remind all of us listening, there is a fountain and it's filled with blood and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Friend, if you are a Christian, if you're a God-built disciple, then you have a ministry within the church. You say, well, why do I do that? Why am I supposed to serve? Why can't I just sit and soak? The answer is because Jesus didn't just sit and soak. 
He could have stayed in heaven, but he didn't. He came out of heaven, came to earth to seek and to save you. He ministered to you so that you might minister on his behalf to others. Because your ministry for the Lord is rooted and hitched in ministry from the Lord. If God's been good to you, then you must be good to others. If God has served you, then you've got to serve others. If God has loved you, then you're compelled to love others. So this morning, if you're not a believer, I invite you to come and accept this Jesus. If you hitch your life to him, I promise you, you'll never regret it. If you are a believer, today I'm asking you, what ministry is God calling you to do? And when you think through that, just go back over the span of your lifetime and as you study the scripture. and Listen, whatever ministry he's done for you, he wants you to do for others. So you think that. You think about that. Because ministry for the Lord is rooted in ministry from the Lord. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this invitation. Lord, we thank you for this day. Uh, Lord, if there's someone here in need of salvation, let them be found today in Christ. Lord, if there's somebody here who needs prayer, let them come to the altar and pray. If there's somebody who needs to join the church, let it happen today. Lord, as you move, help us to respond in obedience. Oh, Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.